And good morning to each of you. I invite you to take uh, God's Word and turn with me to the book of James, chapter 1. We took a break last week, being the first Sunday of the month, and considered together a psalm. Well, today we're back on track in our study of the book of James. And to that end, I invite you, I encourage you to follow along as I begin reading in the first chapter, verse 2. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. The sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. These verses, 2 through 12, uh, constitute, I suppose, what we could call the first section, first block in the book of James. James' theme in this section is pretty evident. Trials. He uses that word in verse 2. He comes full circle to use it again in verse 12. So this is what he has on mind as he pens this book to God's people. Obviously, he knows something of the struggles experienced by God's people. Clearly, he has some sense of urgency and so without any further ado, as he begins this book, he cuts right to the chase, enters right into it, dives into it, the deeps, if you like, and tackles head on this subject, this theme, this motif of trials. His commandment right at the outset, verse 2, is difficult. Let's not pretend otherwise, shall we? Let's just not pretend. This is an extremely difficult command to obey. Not impossible. Difficult, I said. Not impossible by God's Spirit, but difficult. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. If I, if you, if we are going to obey this commandment, that is what it is. It is not a suggestion. It is not advice. It is not counsel. It is is a commandment. Consider it all joy when you fall into trials. 
If we're going to do that, let's face it, our minds must be trained. Our thoughts must be trained. And so let's suppose you're in the car, you're heading up 56 to Granbury, and you've got your hand on the wheel, and the songs are going, and the conversation is lively, and suddenly you feel that the car seems to be pulling to the right, just a little bit, and you pull it back to the middle, and you take your hands off the wheel, and sure enough, the steering wheel moves a little bit, and off it goes to the right, and so you bring it back. Off it goes to the right, you bring it back. What's the problem? Your wheels need to be what? Realigned. Something's wrong with the tires. The tire, maybe one, maybe multiple tires, is not meeting the, the road as it should. Something is slightly off and you need realignment. Our thoughts need constant, constant, daily realignment. Our thoughts will veer effortlessly to the right. They will pull us to the right or they might pull us to the left, and we must constantly realign them. That is precisely what James is doing in these verses. He is realigning our thinking as it applies to trials. He is training us to think biblically. He is training us to think theologically. And he does so by pointing us in four directions. He points us to four great themes. The first is this, God's purpose. You have it in verse 3. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. That's the first truth he points us to, God's purpose. We considered it three Sundays ago, I believe it was, that we have this unshakable confidence, unwavering assurance that we rest in the palm of the hand of a sovereign God who works all things according to the counsel of his will. And even in the darkest moments of life, although his ways are inscrutable, his judgments are unsearchable, we have this conviction, we have this certainty that he has our ultimate good before him, our spiritual maturity. And so we need this constant realignment and this constant reminding of God's purpose. The second truth is this, God's provision. You have it there in the fifth verse. If any of you lacks wisdom, all of us lack wisdom. Two Sundays ago, we know precisely what this wisdom looks like. We went to the third chapter, verse 17, where James defi defines it for us. If any of you lacks wisdom in the midst of trials, let him ask God. What a beautiful promise. And what great confidence we can with which we can request, make this request. Why? Because we know that God, as James says in the fifth verse, gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. And so we have God's purpose, verses 3 and 4. We have God's provision, verses 5 through 8. But the alignment continues. And in verses 9 through 11, James points us to a third motif, God's perspective. And then in the 12th verse, 
He brings it all to a head. He wraps it all up before he moves into his next section, deals with his next theme. And in verse 12, he points us to God's promise. Did you get all four? There you have it. This realignment of our thinking, our thoughts, so that we are enabled by the Spirit of God to count it all joy when we fall into trials of various kinds. God's purpose, God's provision, God's perspective, and God's promise. We've looked at the first two. We took a break last week. Today we pick it up with the third, God's perspective. There you have it in verses 9 through 11. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation. And let the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. But the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. God's perspective. What do I mean by that? Well, look carefully what James says. This won't take long. Look carefully what he says. He addresses two groups of people, doesn't he? Verse 9, the lowly brother. Verse 10, the rich, I assume, rich brother. And so he has these two categories of people before him. Remember, in his day, there is no such thing as a middle class. It just doesn't exist. You are poor or you are rich. And so he addresses this category of people, this group of people over here, and they are marked by poverty. And then he addresses, he turns his attention to this group of people over here, and they are marked by prosperity. And he's in the midst, remember, he's in the midst of dealing with trials. Well, James knows, James knows that both of those life conditions bring trials. That for that individual who finds himself in adversity, that individual who finds himself over here, this condition of life known as poverty, they're going to face a severe trial. They're going to face a severe testing. The testing will basically be this. Will I, will I, in this condition of life, crave wealth? Will I long for it? Now, it might not actually even be wealth. We can broaden the spectrum. This individual over here who perhaps isn't healthy. Well, will I crave health? Is that what will consume me? This individual over here perhaps doesn't have family. Well, will I long for and desire family? Something that is perfectly good in and of itself. Something that we within, yes, the bounds of Scripture can certainly pray for. But is this what will now make me tick? Is this what will consume me? And so when we find ourselves poverty stricken, when we find ourselves on the short, grabbing onto the short end of the stick, if you like, that will test us. And it will test us to what? Crave something and therefore orient our lives and live our lives accordingly. But you jump over here, verse 10. Well, this individual's got everything going for him. This individual's kind of wealthy. This individual's enjoying good health. This individual's got a great family. It always seems sunshine, sunshine, sunshine in this individual's life. But he too is going to be tested. That prosperity brings a test. The test is not, will I crave these things? The test is what? Will I rest in these things? Will I trust these things? 
Will I define myself ultimately by these things? Will I live merely for the here and now and develop a spiritual insensitivity to eternal realities? Both will be tested. And so James gives a command. Anybody getting dizzy as I jump back and forth here? We're back over here now. James gives a command to those who find themselves in that condition, poverty. What is the command? Verse 9. Let that lowly brother do what? Boast. Rejoice. In what? His exaltation. What exaltation? Who he is in the Lord Jesus Christ. That individual, that Christian, that believer is to understand that, yeah, he, she might not have much right now. He, she might be struggling, multiple, a multitude of struggles. But here is God's perspective. This individual is able to exult, able to rejoice in who they are in the Lord Jesus Christ, realizing what? That they know sin's forgiven. They know what it is to have the assurance of salvation. They know what it means to have the hope of eternal life. They know what it means to be a child of God. That man knows what it means to possess all of those promises. He knows that a day is coming when he will inherit a glorified body and soul. And every ache and pain, you define it however you like, every ache and pain will be gone, my friend. That individual understands that he will inherit the world. He might not even have a foot-by-foot plot of land right now to put his little feet on. He might not possess anything in this world. He gets everything someday. And that man understands what? That he will inherit God himself. That yes, we enjoy God now through the word, through the Lord's Supper, through those means by which he reveals himself to us, but they are merely a tantalizing foretaste of what awaits us. This individual, this man in his lowly condition, this woman in her lowly condition, despite the suffering and the pain and anguish that accompanies suffering, is able to see God's perspective and is able to boast in his exaltation. Back with me over here. I haven't forgotten about him. Who do we have over here? I don't have a care in the world over here. Everything I touch turns to gold, it seems. Very prosperous, successful in life, great marriage, great family, never had an ache of pain, never had a sick day in my life. Everything's going well. Oh, that that is a test, is it not? That is a test. Because when we do not feel our need in this world, rarely does that individual feel their need for the next world. The individual who feels nothing, I don't need anything in this life, feels very little when it comes to their great spiritual need. Oh, but that brother, that brother who God has prospered, that brother whom God has blessed materially, what is he to do? Verse 10, what is she to do? Let the rich, prosperity, boast in what? His humiliation, meaning what? Remember that there was a moment, by God's grace, by the work of the Spirit of God, When this person realized, you know, all this stuff I've got and the health I've enjoyed and all of these earthly material things in the final analysis, they're all going to burn. 
in the final analysis, they actually don't mean anything. When it's all said and done, there I am lying in my coffin in the grave. I know this is kind of depressing and discouraging. We don't like to talk about it, but let's talk about it, folks. There I am decomposing, and I have taken absolutely nothing of it with me. And when I stand before God, He isn't going to care how prosperous I was in this life. Oh, let this man rejoice in his humiliation that he understood this. The day came when he understood this. The day came when he understood who he was in the sight of God, that he was a sinner, that what he had and what he enjoyed made him no better than anyone else. In the same sinful, wretched condition, in need of a Savior and divine intervention. And he was gripped by poverty of spirit. And he came before God, not saying, look how successful I am. Look at what I have done. Look at all these things I could bring. No, he came naked before God and recognized he brought nothing to the table and simply pleaded and begged for divine mercy through God's Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, let that man never forget the gospel. Let that man rejoice in his humiliation. That's James' commandments to these two groups of people. Yes, over here, poverty. Yes, over here, prosperity. Oh, please, James is saying, in effect, never lose sight of God's perspective. How God determines and values wealth. Did you get that? I think that's the text. There it is. We can go home. That's it. Verses 9 through 11. I'm convinced that is James. We can't go home, by the way. I'm convinced that is James' main point. As I've studied this the past few weeks, gone back to it, I think I shared with you weeks ago, this is my third time through the book of James. And as I studied these verses and meditated a lot upon them, I wrestled with them. It is good to wrestle with God's word. It is remarkable to discover what a great blessing issues from wrestling with God's word and laying one's soul bare before God's word and actually allowing the word of God to speak into our hearts, however painful and uncomfortable it might be. As I've done that, I found myself wrestling with four questions. And I want to share these with you in the time remaining today. My prayer is that God will bless them mightily to you. We'll see how the time goes. I reserve the right to reduce it from four to three at any point. I will let you know. Definitely three. My goal is four. We'll see. First question is this as I've reflected on these three verses in the context of what James says in 2 through 12. Um, do I see the big picture? Really? I can talk about it. Maybe write an essay on it. But do I really see the big picture? Do I really understand that in the end, when it's all said and done and the game is over, right? There we are, standing before the throne of God, the judgment day. Do I really understand 
that the only thing that is going to matter, the only thing that will be of any value in the sight of God is who I am or who I am not when it comes to his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul words it so well, right out of Philippians 3, 8, indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and I count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. We've heard that verse how many times? We've heard the sentiment expressed how many times? It's fine. The question is this. Do I really see it? See the big picture. Listen to the following. What is water to someone who is dying of thirst? I think it's pretty much everything, isn't it? It's a no-brainer. What is peace to someone who's fighting in a war? In the trenches. It's everything. What is the word benign to someone who has been waiting for the test results? I think it means a great deal. What is food to someone who is living through drought and famine? These things are of inestimable worth because they satisfy an incalculable need. And all else in comparison is vanity. You're with me, right? Listen to this. What is wisdom to someone who is spiritually blind? What is righteousness to someone who is condemned in the sight of God? What is sanctification to someone who is polluted in the sight of God? What is redemption to someone who is surrounded by the miserable consequences of sin? Did you get the four? Wisdom, righteousness, sanctification, redemption. Wisdom, righteousness, sanctification, redemption. 1 Corinthians 1.30. God has made Christ Jesus our wisdom. God has made Christ Jesus our righteousness. God has made Christ Jesus our sanctification. God has made Christ Jesus our redemption. Well, if all of these things, my greatest need, are found in the Lord Jesus Christ, what does that by consequence make the Lord Jesus Christ? It makes him of inestimable worth because he satisfies an incalculable need. Someone has written the following. Jesus is the pearl of great price for which you should sell everything to buy. Jesus is the treasure hidden in a field. Jesus is your defender and advocate who kneels before the Father to pray for you. Jesus is the power of God. Jesus is the wisdom of God. Jesus is the desire of the nations. Jesus is the friend of sinners. Jesus is the lover of your soul. Jesus is the rising sun. Jesus is the bright morning star. Jesus is the radiance of God's glory. 
Can you fathom, do we even begin to fathom what an indescribable gift he is? Do I see the big picture? Speaking of pictures, portraits, paintings, 13, 14 years of age, perhaps. It's funny the things you remember, isn't it? Um, there I was sitting in the little chapel, the little church I was raised in, white little building, red roof, old pews, and um, there I was. And I don't remember the preacher, but I remember the story. I remember the illustration. And it's interesting, I have heard it, I believe, twice since then. And uh, the Lord used it, had a profound effect upon me, even at that age, 13, 14 years of age. And I can't remember if I got all the details right, but I think I got the gist of it. It was simply this. There was, there was a man, this preacher spoke with this man, fiction, I believe. He, he had coined this illustration himself. But he said, you know, imagine this man, an old man who passes away, he dies. And his family is long gone. He had a son, but his son died in the war years before. No one left. And um, he was quite a wealthy man, a landowner, several buildings, livestock in the home, coin collection, art collection, lots of furniture. And so in his will, he simply mandates that everything be auctioned off. The town hears of it. From all around the country, they hear of it, and people gather. Why? They're looking for a deal. Uh, they're looking what they might snatch up as everything is auctioned off, everything this man had gathered and everything that belonged to him. And uh, the auctioneer opens up the auction, calls everything to order. There's a quiet hush and uh, great anticipation as all of these things are to be brought out. And the auctioneer says, um, we are to begin with this and unveils a painting, a portrait. There it is of a young man in uniform, 20 years of age and um, painted by no one of any importance or consequence. Portrait wasn't even really that good. The color already fading. And there is this silent awkwardness in the room. Let's get to the good stuff. Nobody wants this. There's an elderly gentleman over there. He just sort of snuck in onto the side there and he's looking on. And he has been the, uh, the groundskeeper. The old man who's died, this was his groundskeeper for decades going back. They'd known each other since they were young men. And so he cared for the livestock, cared for the gardens, cared for the ground. And um, he saw this portrait. He had come with a few coins, bills, hoping to purchase some memento from this man. He saw this portrait. He shuffled up to the front, pulled everything he had out of his pockets, and placed it there on the table. Is this enough? I'll take it. And the auctioneer, everyone was just thankful that someone finally stepped forward to buy this thing so they could get on with the good stuff. And the auctioneer said, fine, sold, there you are, take it. And as the old man walks away with his portrait, the auctioneer suddenly says, it's all over, it's done. This was the second thing stipulated in the will, that whoever bought the portrait got everything. Why? Because it was the old man's son. It was a portrait of the old man's son who had died in the war. Whoever bought the portrait got everything. Do we, friend... Do you see the big picture? You get Christ, you might have next to nothing in this life, but we get everything. It is all ours. It is just, and I know it sounds so simple, I know, it's just a question of waiting. We hate waiting. It is just a question of waiting. 
it is all ours. Let the poor man boast in his exaltation in Christ. Let the rich man boast in his humiliation in Christ. It is all that matters. Have we taken Christ as our own? That's the first question I've wrestled with. The second builds on it. Here it is. Do I find contentment in Christ? Can I really be content with what I've just said? That's the test, isn't it? Can I really be content? Uh, can I really rejoice in my exaltation in Christ? Can I really rejoice in my humiliation in Christ and define life and live life accordingly? Oh, contentment. It proves so elusive. Again, listen to the wisdom from the pen of the Apostle Paul, Philippians 4. I have learned. That there is very instructive. It is a learning process. I have learned in whatever situation I am to be what? To be what? Content. He goes on and what does he say? I know how to be brought low. And I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty over here and hunger over here. Abundance over here and need over here. Let me share another illustration with you. I got this out of a book some time ago. I've adapted it somewhat, but I think, I think it's pretty effective. And I think through this, we'll get the gist. The gist of what Paul is saying there in Philippians 4, and this great need to learn contentment and find contentment in Christ. And so listen carefully to this, I invite you. You are sitting with a group of friends in a restaurant. You can picture the scene in your mind's eye. You just finished a decent main course and are about to consider the dessert menu when one of your friends gets up, taps his glass with a spoon, and announces that he has brought dessert for everyone as a gift. He disappears around the corner and returns a minute later with chocolate cake and ice cream. If that doesn't work for you, make it work. Banana pudding, whatever it is, it's my story, so it's chocolate cake and ice cream. He distributes the dessert to each of your friends in turn. The table is filled with chatter and expressions of gratitude between mouthfuls. Finally, he comes to you. Rather than chocolate cake, he places a raw turnip on a plate in front of you. You stare at it with a mixture of surprise, confusion, disbelief, and disappointment. The rest of the table hasn't even noticed. They're too busy enjoying their dessert. You pause to reflect. Your heart sinks. A turnip was not what you expected. As soon as you saw everyone receiving their chocolate cake, you simply assumed that was what you would get too. You have to come to terms with the sheer unfairness of being given a raw turnip while your friends enjoy, share, laugh about, and celebrate chocolate cake and ice cream. A nice meal has taken an unexpected turn, and you suddenly feel isolated, disappointed, frustrated, even alone. Now, what's the question? What are you going to do? That's 
the question. How are you going to handle it? How are you going to respond? Now let's imagine the, cha- the, the scene changes completely. You're struggling financially. But no one else seems to be. Lots of disposable income going around. Your health is deteriorating. Everyone else is out swimming laps, riding bikes, playing golf. You can't have children. But that couple can't stop having children. Your marriage isn't what you thought it would be. But that couple over there is so cute and cuddly, it makes you want to spit, right? Let's face it, folks, that is the way our minds work. It's the way they work. You've never been promoted in your life, but that guy's running the business after three months. You're stuck with a raw turnip. What are you going to do? How are you going to respond? Again, Paul, I have learned, I have learned, I have learned, undoubtedly over a long period of time, I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content, I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound in every and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. What is the secret? We already know. What is it? It goes back to the first question. Do I see the big picture? If I don't see the big picture, then I don't know the secret. And if I don't know the secret, I will never, ever, ever, ever learn contentment. It all goes back to our appreciation of who we are in the Lord Jesus and understanding that what we have in Christ is everything. Robert Murray McShane, if you've never read his biography, well worth picking it up sometime and reading it. An Englishman, 1800s, dead at the age of 28, 29. Fascinating biography. And Robert Murray McShane, in one of his sermons, he stated the following, for every look at your sins, take 10 looks at Christ. Did you catch it? For every look you take at your sins, take 10 looks at Christ, at Calvary's cross. That's profitable. Don't have time to go down that road this morning. I want to tweak it a little bit. Here it is. For every look you take at your trials, take 10 looks at Christ. That's the secret. For every look, every look, one look, 10 looks at Christ. Build on it. For every minute you spend discussing your trials, spend 10 minutes discussing Christ. For every hour you spend worrying about your trials, spend 10 hours gazing upon Christ. For every hour you spend studying, analyzing your trials, oh, spend 10 hours studying Christ. That is the secret to contentment, seeing the big picture in the Lord Jesus. Yes, let me confirm it for you. We are skipping the third question. Don't worry. 
We're going to come back to it in James because it's a subject he comes back to on at least three more occasions. On to the fourth question I've been wrestling with. Here it is. Do I number my days? Do I number my days? Here again, what James has written in verses 9 through 11. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation because, oh, it's so powerful. This is out of Psalm 103, I believe. A flower, we are like a flower of the grass. And so picture the blue bonnet there in the spring, right? April, May, a flower of the grass. He will, they never stick around, do they? couple weeks, maybe, he will pass away. It's an absolute certainty. What's going to happen? Well, the thermometer is going to hit 100 degrees. We know that. The sun's coming out around here, and those hot winds are going to blow, and it's going to scorch everything. It's going to wither the grass. The flower will fall. Its beauty, all its splendor, all that attracts the eye, all that we value, here it is, it's gone. So also, will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits? Yeah, I think James has Psalm 103 in mind. Here's what we, the psalmist says back there, verses 15 and 16. As for a man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field. For the wind passes over it, and it is gone. It's the last statement I find to be bone-chilling. Here it is. And its place knows it no more. There's not even anything left. Its place doesn't even know it anymore. Its place doesn't even remember it. It looked quite spectacular while it was here. And you turn away, you look back, and you're not even quite sure where it was. It's gone. I, think, I don't remember how long ago Allison and I in Scotland, I guess maybe it was early 2000 maybe. 2002, something like that. And uh, we went to this little town called Les Mahago, which is where my father's side is from, South Scotland, and uh, found the cemetery where my great, great, no, my great-grandfather is buried. And so went along all the tombstones, finally found it, William, his wife, Mary, a couple of the children who died in infancy. And there's the plot. There I stand before it, William Yule, with the years, age he was when he died. And it was a typical day in Scotland, you know, the gray clouds, the hills that are over there, the winds blowing around, everything. Just, just missing the bagpipes. That's all it was missing. And there I was looking at this thing and uh, a lot of thoughts going through my mind. The, the, the dominant thought was this, Stephen, you couldn't even fill half a page with information about this man. I don't even think I could put three sentences together. Oh, we, we, we think we're, we're here and we're making such a fuss, aren't we? Here we are, center of the universe. We're here today, and poof, we're gone tomorrow, and its place remembers it no more. A couple generations from now, I know you don't want to hear this. They're not going to remember you. You might have the complimentary photograph somewhere in a hallway, I don't know, but that's going to be it. No one's going to remember. A couple more generations after that, even all those photos, even all that digital stuff we think is going to be here forever. It might be here. Nobody's going to be looking at it, friends. We're here. We're gone. Beautiful flowers. 
in our prosperity. Oh, God, give me wisdom to number my days. Let's face it. You're an unbeliever, perhaps. You aren't a Christian. Here you are, young, maybe old. Oh, please understand. Please hear these words of wisdom from James. You are like a flower of the grass that will pass away. You are going to die. And it, for all we know, might be very soon. A couple of weeks ago, we got the message, friends of ours back in Ontario, her mother, maybe 60 years of age, when you know it, it just driving Wednesday evening to help out at Rwanda at the church, boom, on the road, killed instantly. We're here, we could be gone in a moment. We are like grass that passes away. If you aren't a believer, oh, forget everything else you've heard to this point, please get this. Yeah, the uncertainty of life and the absolute certainty that you're going to stand before God and the absolute certainty that God knows everything about you, not merely your external, but exactly what makes you tick. What goes on inside that head of yours and every gust of emotion you have ever felt. And my friend, on that day when you stand before him, you are going to be found wanting. And there will be no place to hide from God whose eyes are a burning fire. Oh, my friend, I beg of you, get wisdom and number your days. And understand, you are here today, you will be gone tomorrow, and eternity lies before you. Two great destinies. You are on the cusp of two eternal destinies. Dare I name them? Heaven, and I know it's very impolite now in, in, in polite society, hell. Heaven and hell. They are there before you, eternity. Oh, get wisdom. And number your days and understand that God has made provision for sinners in his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And he commands you this day in very simple terms to look away from yourself. Cease your rebellion. Cease your striving. Cease running from him. And come to him in faith through the Lord Jesus Christ, confessing your sin and coming to your senses for once in your life and being reconciled with the living God. The unbeliever, I don't know. You know who you are. You need to hear that. Believers, we need to hear that too. Why? Oh, because this world has such a pull on us. We're here, and it all seems to be so important. And in the grand scheme of things, it's actually much of it quite irrelevant. Vanity in the midst of eternity. Oh, and put it in the context, oh, Christians, put it in the context of James 1. How are we going to count it all joy when we fall into trials? If we aren't caught up with eternity, how are we going to handle disappointment, rejection, illness, deprivation if we don't think about eternity? How are we going to avoid the allure, the constant tug of ease and comfort and pleasure and entertainment whereby we're stupefying ourselves if we don't look to eternity, 
How will we crush the idol of materialism if we do not dwell regularly upon eternity? So here it is out of Psalm 90, verse 12, one of my favorite verses. So teach us, oh God, teach us, teach us, teach us, teach us to number our days that we may present to you a heart of wisdom to be wise is to be convinced of the uncertainty of our abode in this world and to live accordingly. Our God in heaven above, as we have meditated and, yes, wrestled with your word this day, we now seek your blessing upon it. We acknowledge our hopelessness apart from you to come and teach us, instruct us, guide us, not merely externally with the written word and the word preached, but internally whereby the Spirit makes it come alive, come alive in our minds and in our hearts, gripping us and shaping us and forming us. And so we pray that you might do that work in us this day by your Spirit. And our Father, for the unbelievers present, you know who they are, young and old, male and female, boy and girl. Uh, we do intercede on their behalf earnestly and ask that this might be the day of salvation and ask you to give sight to those blind eyes and ask you to soften those darkened and stubborn hearts and show them that the Lord Jesus is a great Savior, able to save now and unto eternity. And this we ask in his precious name. Amen.